The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. On this last Sunday of Lent, we look at another one of Jesus' parables. It's one that's more difficult for us to wrestle with than the one that was preached last week. It's not the interpretation that's difficult. Not at all. It's rather straightforward. It's the content that is hard for us to deal with. It's hard for us to chew on, kind of like a, like a thick steak. Last week was about rejoicing in the undeniable, extravagant love of God for His people in Christ. This week's gospel lesson is about judgment, condemnation, and punishment for those who reject God's Son. But while there's always the threat of punishment, and there's always the threat of the law in God's Word, there's always, always abundant grace. Grace that we might lay hold of it. So just stay with me this morning as we plow our way through this parable of the wicked tenants, and we'll sort out what Jesus is saying to us. So Jesus had already entered Jerusalem by this point. He was teaching daily in the temple. Now, among this crowd were scribes and Pharisees and leaders of the Sanhedrin who already wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him, but they could do little by that point because the passage of Scripture in in, in Luke chapter 19, it actually says that people were hanging on his words. So it wouldn't do just to drag him out and kill him because they feared the crowds. He spoke to this mass of pilgrims who were packed in and around Jerusalem because it it was... Getting, they were getting prepared for the Passover. And so there were all kinds of people that were there flocked to Jerusalem. And that's who Jesus was speaking to. And by this point in the story, Jesus is already done with his opponents. He's already done with them. But he was holding them with an earshot so that they might hear his pronouncements against them. It's a very tense and dramatic scene. We've got to keep this in mind whenever we look at this passage. You've got two groups of people there. You've got the pilgrims there that were hanging on to the words of Jesus and listening to Him, and then you've got the group of those who were rejecting Him, the Sanhedrists, the religious leaders. It's intense. The lesser among us might back down from this situation, but Jesus does not. He does not back down. The Sanhedrists actually challenged his authority. They said, Jesus, by what authority do you teach these things? In other words, who gives you the right to say this stuff? And Jesus answers their challenge with a challenge of his own. And after he shuts them up, for lack of a better word, he turns to the pilgrims. So he quiets down the naysayers and then he turns to the pilgrims. And he shares this parable, the parable that we heard this morning. There was a man who owned a vineyard and he leased it out to tenants as the owner was going to be in a far off country. When he sent his servant to collect some of that fruit that was rightfully his, the tenants beat him and sent him back with nothing. So the owner of the vineyard was a patient man. So he sent another servant to collect But the tenants treated that servant even worse than the first. They beat him and mocked him to add insult to injury. So what does the owner do? He sends a third servant, and wouldn't you know it, they treated that one even worse than the previous two, leaving him mortally wounded and casting him out of the vineyard. 
So we all see where this is headed. There's a progression. It's a curious thing, isn't it? It seems like the owner of the vineyard should have learned by now. That he should have learned how these tenants feel about him. How the tenants feel about these servants of his that he's sending. It should be obvious how they feel about this owner's claim to ownership. If it were you or me, the first time our servant got beaten, we would have put an end to the whole thing right then and there. Would we not? We would. But not this owner. This owner sticks with that same strategy. This owner is patient. He patiently sends more servants in hopes that the tenants would come to their senses. And yet each servant one by one, like clockwork, was treated worse than the previous one until the owner gets to the final card that he's ready to play. He sends his beloved son to the vineyard thinking that the tenants would perhaps listen to him and show him some respect. But instead, what happens? The gesture only increases vitriol. And the venom that they feel towards the owner. Here came the son, and they actually recognized him, but instead of receiving him, they plotted to kill him right away in hopes that the owner would send no one else, because there is no one else to send. And then the vineyard would be theirs. So they threw the son out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, there was one major problem with this strategy. They actually failed to account for who? The owner himself. And Jesus gets us to the conclusion of this parable. He asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard actually do to those servants, uh, uh, those tenants? What will he do to the tenants? And then Jesus answers for us. He answers his own question. He says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Some of the parables that Jesus tells in the scriptures are pretty difficult for us to sort out. They're hard to interpret. And uh, if you feel bad about that or, you know, you feel lesser than, just keep in mind that the disciples, would op- they would op- often pull Jesus aside and they would say, Hey, Jesus, so what were you talking about just now? <laughs> so we're in good company. A lot of the parables are like that. They are hard, but not this one. This one is rather plain. He was talking to those pilgrims of Jerusalem who were hanging on to his every word, but he also wanted those Sanhedrists to hear him, those scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders, what have you. He knew that they were within earshot. He was talking about them. The vineyard in the story is Isaiah, uh, uh, excuse me, is Israel. Israel is the vineyard in the story as revealed in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 bears it out. And as you can probably recall from a couple of weeks ago, I uh, I preached on the parable of the fig tree, of the unproductive fig tree. And in that parable, the vineyard was Israel as well. That is well established. Whenever we talk about vineyards, we, we should think Israel. And the owner of that vineyard is, of course, God. The tenants who were supposed to tend to that vineyard are those Jewish religious elites, and the servants that the owner sends are the prophets of the Old Testament. This is is brilliant by Jesus. In one rhetorical flourish, he sums up the entire story of the Old Testament. 
He gives it all to us right there. You've got Israel who is placed in the vineyard. They were supposed to be productive. They were supposed to bring forth fruit. And whenever they didn't, God sent his servants, his prophets to them. And one by one, like clockwork, they rejected them, treated each one worse than the first. Just like Isaiah chapter 5 says, it says, He dug it, that's God, He dug it clear of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Not the good grapes, the kind of grapes we got growing over here on the fence, which a couple of you, I think, have made wine out of those, haven't you? Yeah, it's an interesting taste to it. Right? So as children of the promise, Israel was meant to yield fruit. And they were meant to bring blessing to the nations, and they were set up well to do so. They were set up to to bring blessing to the nations as God promised Abraham. And instead, they turned against God. They committed these various forms of idolatry. And whenever God sent his servants to call them to faith and to trust in the one true God, they were either abusive or they were murderous towards them. And God would send more and more servants over the centuries, but that cycle of abuse and mistreatment would only continue. Recently, we heard from uh, uh, Luke chapter 13, where Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, uh, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that city that kills the prophets that are sent to it. It had gained that reputation. So then when the time had come, the owner of the vineyard sent forth his beloved son. And whenever we hear those words, alarm bells go off in our heads. His beloved son, we know who that is. In case we were struggling with who the characters are up to this point, when it gets to the beloved son, we know who the beloved son is. It's the Sunday school answer. The answer for everything. It's that same answer that I always try to have my confirmation students give whenever I ask a question. It's a layup. Always say, Jesus. Who's this passage about? Jesus. What's the entire narrative sweep and the scope of Scripture about? Jesus. What is this Christian faith about? Jesus. What is the church's one foundation? Jesus. That's our answer. This is the beloved son. He is sent into the vineyard by the owner that maybe the wicked tenants will listen to the son but no such luck. They treat him the worst of all. And there's this morbid twist of irony. They would fulfill Jesus's words. They would fulfill this parable only a few days later. They would take him outside of Jerusalem and they would crucify him. Jesus was not crucified within the vineyard or within the gates. Remember, they brought him outside the gate. And therefore, the judgment of the owner against the wicked tenants was just. He would destroy them and not just destroy them and not just lease out the vineyard to someone else, but he would actually give that vineyard out to someone else. And the meaning of this parable is not lost on the hearers. They're not dummies. They know their Old Testament scriptures. They know who they're sitting there in front of. Uh, There was no pulling Jesus aside to ask him what the interpretation was. They responded this way. They said, surely not. Another way of saying, heaven forbid, may it never be so. And what were they objecting to? Probably all of it. 
They're objecting to the killing of the son. They're objecting to the killing of the tenants. They're objecting to the transfer of the vineyard to others. They can't stomach any of this. But Jesus doesn't flinch, does he? He actually doubles down on what he's saying. He doesn't say, well, let me clarify here. He doubles down. And the text says that he looked right at them. Looked right at them and he quotes this scripture. He says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This caused, them, this caused those, those Sanhedrists so much offense that the scripture says they wanted to lay hands on him right then, but they feared the people and they kept watch and they were even sending spies that they might catch him in something off that he said. So what was so offensive here about what Jesus said? The passage of scripture that he's quoting is from Psalm 118. It's a very famous psalm. It's one that would have been sung regularly in Jewish worship. Uh, it, it's one that was known by heart by all of them. Uh, we look at Psalm 118, we can see it is a long uh, ding-dang psalm. It is long, but they would have known it like the back of their hands. And it was likely composed at the return of the, the Jewish people from Babylonian captivity. So whenever they came back into the promised land, now they were going to construct a new temple. And whenever they laid that cornerstone, this psalm was composed. The cornerstone to the temple. The foundation of the people of God. But notice how Jesus interprets this passage. He's not talking about a cornerstone of a temple. Now Jesus interprets this in light of who he is. As our Old Testament reading this morning said from Isaiah, God is doing a new thing. He is laying a new foundation. Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation of the people of God. He is not any man-made structure. He is the cornerstone, the rejected stone that the psalm is referring to. And that stone would cause offense to many. It would be a stone of stumbling. It would crush those who opposed it. And this is a powerful word of judgment against any who oppose Christ and his gospel. It applied to Jesus' opponents in those days, and it definitely applies now. Jesus Christ is the promised stone. He is the promised son that would be rejected by men, that would be slaughtered as a common criminal, but God would not only vindicate his son by raising him from the dead, but also bring destruction on those who reject him. Well, that's the meaning of the text. But what does this have to do with you? And where's, where in the world is the good news? All we've heard this morning is death and judgment, stones falling on people. The text presents us with two options. We either throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus, who is the rock of ages, or we get crushed by the cornerstone in divine judgment. There is no in-between with Jesus. There is no middle ground. We either have faith in the Christ of Scripture as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world or we perish eternally. We get what we deserve when we despise and reject God's free gift of salvation through His Son whom He has raised from the dead and glorified. 
So where is the good news? And how can you know that you are among those who will not enter into judgment but have everlasting life? How can you know? Let me make you a promise. Notice what Jesus says in the parable. That the owner of the vineyard will give it away to others. That's you people. That's you. You are the new occupants of the vineyard. You're not leasing this thing out. It's yours. You've been called by the gospel and enlightened with the gifts of Jesus in holy baptism. Formerly, the scripture says, formerly you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And by faith in the rejected stone, Jesus Christ, you have redemption through His blood. You have the forgiveness of all of your sins. The stone does not fall on you to crush you because it already crushed Christ in your place. God declares you righteous in His sight on account of His Son, of His his beloved Son who has interceded for you and I even though we did nothing to deserve it. This beloved son was crucified outside of Jerusalem for us. And his rejection was the means by which he delivers to us salvation. And this cornerstone, the one who was so despised by the world, but so precious to us, is the only hope that we have in this life and the life of the world to come. He is all that we have to hold up to the world. We hold Him up to the world that they might believe as well, that they might also have eternal life and salvation through faith in the name of the only Son of God. Yes, our our message is offensive to many just as it was in Jesus' day. We know that as we inch along and we edge ever closer to Holy Week, in which we observe and commemorate our Lord's passion, we know that Jesus' crucifixion is going to become the ultimate stumbling block. To those who are perishing, the cross is the stench of death. But to you, it is the aroma of life. As St. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This gospel that we herald is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to this place that we're called to. But to you, it is the power of God unto salvation. So as we wrap up this Lenten season during this week, I pray that you would throw yourself again upon the rock of ages in brokenness, in contrition, that He may raise you up, that He may restore to you the joy of your salvation. Continue in His Word. Hold fast to His promises. Continue to say to the devil, I am baptized. I have been given the vineyard. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.